Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, I am back. Um, sounds like you've had fun without me, though. Oh, I mean, but we always miss you, Nadia. Ah, oh, that's nice. Yeah, we had a really nice review roundtable around Fire Emblem Three Houses, uh, which was, of course, very spoiler-filled. I haven't looked at the stats, but I expect that plenty of people are going to be waiting, because Fire Emblem Three Houses is a big <laughs> game. Have you started playing? Yes, I have, actually. I um, I don't know how many hours I'm in. I, I picked the Golden Deer House, and I think I'm like kind of flying along a bit there. Sounds like that was the correct choice. Uh, well, I'm not going to ask you to spoil it for me, but how are you liking it? Oh, I'm liking it quite a bit. Uh, I'm having a good time, and I can't wait till we're done so I can play some more. Yeah, I mean, we've talked quite a bit about Fire Emblem on this podcast, so I'm not going to rehash it too much, but you should go check out the couple podcasts where I went really in-depth on it, and maybe we'll circle back on it at another time. In the meantime, uh, Nana, you're at Otakon, yes. which is your, your annual pilgrimage. I, mean, <laughs> yes. I saw on your Facebook lots of like very fun pictures. Uh, it looked like a very nerdy good time. It was. Um, basically, I go to Otakon practically every year. Uh, I have been going uh, for 14 consecutive years now, uh, and I kind of meet up with the same group of friends, and we all just kind of stay together. Uh, so it's, it's a really good, interesting time. Uh, I've followed it across Baltimore and now it's in DC. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was a good show. Um, this year, the Final Fantasy XIV cosplay was arguably one of the most popular cosplays. It's always fun to see, uh, which cosplay is, you know, the most popular of that particular year. So I'd say 14 probably took, uh, one of the bigger prizes this year. Uh, 15 still quite popular. It still gets a lot of cosplay done. Uh, other than that, nothing was too centralized other than the usual, you know, standbys like you have your nintendo characters you have your pokemon uh there was one year when, when practically everyone was team skull though that was that was pretty fun oh yeah i remember that year that was so much fun that was <laughs> of course they're like the most fun group as far as i'm concerned you're never gonna get as fun as team skull ever again i'm sure that the scott the team in the new pokemon sword and shield are gonna be very lame because you know, they had to compromise or something due to the National Pokedex. Oh, of course. They probably, like, <laughs> cut down half the population or something. I don't know. <laughs> How much has Otakon changed over the last 14 years? Um, you know, it's funny. The event itself, not too terribly much. It's always, you know, you always have your panels. You always have your screenings. You always have this and that. Uh, last year, we did have the Distant Worlds concert, which was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. But, you know, every so often you get a concert like that. What has changed is basically like navigating the con itself because, well, number one, now that it's out of Baltimore and into D.C., it's so much more room to walk around in. Uh, the Baltimore Convention Center was way too small for that purpose. And um, I will say I don't know how in God's name I ever attended a con without a cell phone. I, I mean, I did it obviously at some point, but just – being able to text your friends and say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm on my way. And instead of like, okay, everyone has to meet up at this time. Otherwise, you know, you're going to get left behind. Uh, that is so, that is such a relief. There was a time in my life when I wasn't using a smartphone. I don't remember it very well. It was a very dark period of my life, apparently, because I do not remember it. Um, I do remember like there were some years I would take the train from uh, from Toronto to to Baltimore, which was quite a haul. And I would, like, play my DS or whatever, and, you know, I'd be desperate to check my email. But all I really had was a, a feature phone, which I don't know if you've ever tried to surf the web on a feature phone, but it's a nightmare. <laughs> I do remember 
commuting into work in Japan, uh, and I would be going from uh, Kanagawa all the way into Tokyo, which is a solid 45 minutes on the train, uh-huh. and I would have my headphones into my iPod. Yes. And I would be listening to One Up Yours or Retronauts. <laughs> nice. And I would be playing Super Robot Wars on my DS. And nice. it was the best time of my day because I would just completely shut down from the world, be in my Zen spot, heading into work. It was so comfortable on those trains. It, yeah, uh, they are comfortable. Now, like, I don't even bring stuff like my Switch on the trains. I just got my phone and I'm just sitting there surfing the internet the entire time. Pretty much, although I will say Toronto doesn't have any, um, like, uh, service underneath, like, in the tunnels and stuff, which is a pain in the ass. Oh, really? No, nope. they do, they kind of do in San Francisco, but I don't know. I'm going to Burning Man soon, and I don't want to get all, like, techno-Luddite on this site or on this podcast, but I am going to be putting my phone in a lockbox and not looking at it for a week, and it's going to be great. That's going to be hard. I, w- I would consider that to be very hard. Oh, uh, Really? Yeah, um, I'm just, uh, I'm a bit of an addict. I'm also one of those people who are just like, uh, if I have a thought that I think is funny, I got to put it on the internet because I'm a huge egomaniac. If I could uninvent one thing, it would probably be social media. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess. smartphones are second. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, I think the, the ship has sailed on that one. I mean, I hate I social know. media, but I love it too. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> There's a thing. But anyway, some things that we're going to be talking about. We are going to be talking about portable devices this week because, well, it is the 30th anniversary of the Nintendo Game Boy. It was just yesterday that it was the 25th anniversary of the Game Boy. In fact, if you go look on the site, you can find our old retrospective from Jeremy Parrish in which he lays out the history of the Game Boy and such. Um, Yeah, it's a wonderful little device. And normally we've been trying to go kind of uh, chronologically in our console RPG quest. Mm-hmm. And normally the second Genesis would be next, but I mean, we can't pass up the opportunity to do the Game Boy, which no. would have been next anyway. <laughs> We're yeah, just going to flip around. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, it would be really nice if everything lined up perfectly, but life is not always perfect like that. Yeah. I'm also going to talk a little bit about The Outer Worlds, which I got a chance to play hands-on and very quickly... We will be hitting on developers weighing in on Pokemon Sword and Shield. In the meantime, well, if you want to follow me on social media, I'm on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And of course, you can follow US Gamer on all of the different social platforms at US Gamer Net. A public service announcement, Nadia. Mm hmm. You're going to have a panel at PAX West at the That's end right. of August. Tell us a little bit about that. I will be talking about uh, the basically the houses of Midgar and how atmospheric and how interesting they are. Because in that single generation, uh, even like a matter of a few years, really, we went from like kind of those cookie cutter uh, set pieces that you have for inns and pubs and whatnot in in RPGs right to Midgar, which is practically every room is is unique and built around its inhabitants. And I think that's a really interesting topic. And hopefully you think so too. Yes. Come to Nadia's panel at PAX West, where they will be doing a deep dive into Midgar in Final Fantasy VII, what makes it special. Joining her will be our old friend Jeremy Parrish. Tim Rogers from Kotaku did that incredible deep dive into the localization of Final Fantasy VII. 
and our good friend Ash Paulson from Game Explain. Uh, forgive me, I don't have the exact time on hand, but <laughs> I think it's during the weekend, probably, so at a decent time. Uh, there's going to be this cool Gamer Network Theater this year, mm-hmm. uh, and it's going to be at the Sheraton Hotel Level 3. So if you want to know where all the U.S. Gamer fam are, then just go over there and kind of hang out there, and probably you'll see us there. Just please don't stalk us too much. <laughs> we'll be swarming. Uh, also, Axel Blood God has a newsletter, which comes out every single Wednesday. Nadia, what was the topic of the newsletter this week? Well, it was actually quite topical because I wrote about uh, what job slash class would you want to be in a Fire Emblem game. And oh, I, I thought you were going to say a Final Fantasy game. I'm like, Red Mage. <laughs> that is also a very good question. Um, I'd want to be a Dragoon, of course, even though... Because you, you get to use the fire, the, the black magic and the white magic, and you get to wear a jaunty hat. Yeah, they are actually by far the best dressed of the Final Fantasy crew. Easy. Well, Dragoons are second, though, because you get that boss lance. You get the boss lance and the boss armor. Class that you want to be in Fire Emblem, what did yeah. you say? Uh, I said any kind of a mounted class would be pretty great. I'd love to be a wyvern mm. rider, even though I don't I don't hate heights, but I don't love heights. I just want a chance to be a friend with a dragon. I think that'd be cool. Um, I mean, that's fair, but <laughs> yeah. I would be pretty terrified of slipping off that back, and it's probably cold up there. Yeah, that is a problem. I'd have to dress up warm, like, because I don't like the cold very much. Um, there's also, like, just any sort of mounted unit. Like, I would love to be uh, a horseback archer of some kind, but I'd probably fall off. You know, flyers are great, but I would be so afraid of getting shot out of the air all the dang time by snipers. Yeah, yeah no kidding, because uh, they do not protect themselves well against arrows up there. Yeah, uh, I mean, they have a lot of mobility, which is obviously their strength, but you just know that at any moment, all of a sudden, here comes uh, an arrow, and then your poor Pegasus is dead, and you're plummeting down to the earth, down, 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 down. 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 Yep. Ouch. Uh, yeah. So as for me, hmm, that is a good question because I don't think there's any particular class that I super like. I mean, I do like the mounted bow. Mm-hmm. Those are um, cool. But usually I kind of like the heroes who have unique classes and anything anything with a flaming sword is okay by me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to pick the flaming sword because it's hard to lose with one of those. The past few years, the lords have been a little OP, I want to yeah, say, because the uh, the characters like Robin can not only have amazing magical abilities, but can also use weapons up close. And so they are invariably the best unit. It's not close, as opposed to, say, Blazing Sword, where the lords are still powerful, but maybe a little more balanced. Yeah, and uh, I don't remember if the if it's still like game over instantly if your lords die. But it, I know I was terrified of having them die when I used to play the old school uh, GBA games. My recollection is that in Blazing Sword, if Lin dies, it's game over. Right. Yeah, like there are characters who are mission critical, but other characters are not mission critical, which is interesting. I'm I'm I bet this is on YouTube. I wonder if there's anybody who purposefully lost everybody and played through the entirety of the game with just Lynn, Elliewood, and Hector. I imagine that would be borderline There's, impossible. I'm sure someone out there has done it. I'm actually watching a, a new series on YouTube called Softlock Picking, where uh, this guy purposely softlocks his game 
and traps himself and then tries to find a way out. So someone out there has got to do it. The first Super Robot Wars I ever played was for the DS, Super Robot Wars W. It was notoriously easy. Mm-hmm. And there were people who could use the joke character, Boss Borod, <laughs> who in the in the Mazinger show is intentionally a buffoon. They could solo the entire game with it. Yeah, yeah. There are people who just like to, to challenge themselves like that and or punish themselves, however you look at it. Whatever you want to do, that's the beauty of games. You can play them however you want, right? You can. You can play them however you like, and that's why they're fun. Anyway, if you want more quality RPG topics like that one, you should subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, Be like Homer, and be like you want to subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, That didn't come out as well as I would like, but whatever. (laughs) Don't care. You enjoy my ideas, and you want to subscribe to my newsletter. Thank you, Nadia. Uh, You can sign up over on the site. Um, All right, let's move on to some of the main topics of the show. First up, Nadia, you wanted to talk briefly about game developers reacting to Pokemon Sword and Shield. Uh, Well, basically, there's not too much to say beyond uh, game developers found out, like, or they knew, or they've been basically collecting their thoughts about the whole Sword and Shield controversy and saying what they think about the Pokedex being cut. And do we know yet how many Pokemon are being cut? I don't think we do, do we? We do not have details yet on which Pokemon will not be making the cut. Okay, right. So, but the point is, uh, to to sum it all up, developers are saying, wow, I thought they, like, were going to cut it a long time ago. <laughs> I'm surprised they went this far, animated animating every single damn Pokemon, uh, which by the time we're done with Sword and Shield, we're easily going to get up into the thousands, uh, uh, depending on how much are cut in the end. But every game developer I have talked to about this issue, personally myself, has said pretty much like the same thing. Uh, animating and not just animating, but like putting shading and, and everything like that and making running through glitch checks and everything. Just all that work for a thousand Pokemon. It's just remarkable that Game Freak kept it up for this long. And... There is no, there. you're just not going to get people who are happy with that answer no matter what, because there are still people who say, oh, well, you know, Game Freak promised us uh, better animations for the cuts, and look how terrible they animate, you know, like pointing out how Tailwag is still basically the Pokemon shaking its bum, and uh, I guess people don't like that very much. And I used to kind of be in that camp, too. It was actually Pokemon um, Sun and Moon, where I think you were the one who said, well, imagine how much work it is to if you were to animate Tailwag, which is a, a, a move that most Pokemon have. And imagine, like, animating that particular move across hundreds of Pokemon, like, making them different for each every single Pokemon is just not possible. And I said, uh, actually, now that you put it that way, you're, you're probably right. So I, I've kind of made my peace with Pokemon being and looking the way it does. I think it still looks perfectly good. Yeah, I think that this is valuable insight from developers, uh, especially because you have so many armchair developers who are picking mm-hmm. apart every single aspect of Pokemon and making it like there's some kind of expert who can explain exactly why Game Freak is in fact lazy yes. rather than making a strategic kind of uh, cut. At the same time, I want to just come out and say it, Nadia, Game Freak and the Pokemon company, they made their own bed. Yes. Finally, after so. all these years, their decision to just keep piling on Pokemon for the, sur- the for the reasons of marketing has come back to bite them. 
because they couldn't stop. They could not just freaking slow down. They always had to have a few hundred more Pokemon, always a few hundred more, not like 10 more. They couldn't yeah. stick with the pool that they had, <laughs> but find different ways to use them. No, they always had to add like 150, 100 more Pokemon. And eventually they got to the point where they just couldn't do it anymore. Well, yeah. I mean, the game that they created, the economy is based a lot on collection. And that of is a course. huge part of it. You're going to alienate that player base. They're going to be real mad when you can't, uh, how, when you can't, you know, provide for them anymore. And frankly, they communicated it horribly by yeah. just kind of trying to pass it off at E3 as like, kind of a no big deal, uh, trying to sneak it out there, and then almost like a Friday news dump in the middle of like briefly being mentioned during E3. Well, that's not going to happen. And they they haven't done any work. They haven't done anything to reassure fans. Just kind of going, yeah, uh, yes, Pokemon, they're great. Uh, like, I mean, they've just allowed this to fester. And, I mean, again, also, this has become a, this franchise has become a, basically an annualized franchise where they're putting out games every single year. They're on this crazy tight budget that is complete uh, schedule that is completely defined by their marketing machine so they have absolutely no wiggle room no leeway they can't delay the game they're stuck and it's because of the dang marketing machine well i mean they made their own bed I, I don't have a ton of sympathy for them in some respects i think the conversations become completely toxic i do think that the insight here is valuable uh, at the end of the day, I'm going to shrug my shoulders and go, well, that's too bad, and move on with my lives. But broadly speaking, they shouldn't have made this this decision. The re- This happening to them is the result of years and years of decisions, very pointed decisions that were designed to maximize the profits of the series. Yeah, I think a lot of people who are saying, um, oh, well, they can just delay the game don't realize, yes, this is a, a very tightly wound marketing machine and there is very little wiggle room, uh, practically none to speak of, actually. And uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, they did kind of paint themselves into a corner here. And um, I think maybe they totally, completely, wholly underestimated people getting mad about the cut Pokedex. Maybe they didn't see that coming. That's fine. Although, as you say, they should maybe be addressing it, and they're not. Uh, I mean, I- the the correct solution, I think, is to say, well, uh, out of the box, there's not going to be everything, but we're going to be releasing them in waves. Right. And yeah, if if they could, I, I still feel like they are going to go back and say, oh, yeah, we're going to add everyone eventually. And if that's the case, let people know, tell them, okay, yes, the National Dex is coming soon. Just hold your horses, your, your ponytas, and just wait. And uh, most people, I think, would be pretty reasonable about that. Because, yeah, you know, you go through the story just uh, with, the, with the Pokemon they give you. And by the time you're ready to get serious about battling and, and what have you, then yeah, go ahead and go back and, and bring in your own Pokemon. I mean, and yeah, Pokemon Go doesn't have every single Pokemon yet. They're being released in waves. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. They didn't even, I mean, are all of the Diamond Pearl, Diamond and Pearl Pokemon even in yet? Um, I think they're, you know what, I think they're still gradually adding that. And as you say, most people are fine. And there's, it's not like there's not other stuff going on in the game. Like they have the whole Team Rocket thing going on right now, which is pretty fun. Yeah, set expectations. Uh, so fans, you have literally no excuse for going out and like putting harassment and death threats on the Game Freak team. Shame on yes. you. Uh, Game Freak team, uh, you really made your own bet on this and you need to communicate better. <laughs> okay, Pokemon Company, be better. So everybody, be better. <laughs> everybody be better, exactly. I am hoping we get some kind of like news from Game Freak soon. I don't know what or what, but... 
Uh, they're yeah. in radio silence right now, you know. They really are. But then again, I, I don't so think they really know how to deal with this. They probably don't. I don't think they, like I said, I don't think they predicted this kind of backlash. But then again, uh, No Man's Sky, the team there, Hello Games, went into radio silence after all the anger towards that game. And in the end, it kind of paid off because they just put their heads down and got it to work. So the other game that's maybe a little more anticipated or at least less controversial is The Outer Worlds, which I got a chance to play in L.A. Mm -hmm. last week. You can go find my impressions on the site. I interviewed uh, lead designer Charles Staples about being evil in the game. (laughs) And (laughs) I also posted some gameplay with... um, uh, well, with some thoughts, uh, and, and my, my my main thing, the drum that I've been kind of beating around the Outer Worlds is that people shouldn't expect something on the scale of like, you know, Skyrim or mm-hmm. even uh, Fallout New Vegas, because the team in this case is so much smaller and the budget is just not as big. And right, of course. they're really setting expectations for this game. But there is a plus side to this, Nadia. Mm-hmm. The plus side of the outer worlds being smaller is that they can put more love and care into the in- individual environments, you know? Yeah, there you go. Um, instead of a big sprawling open world, uh, you can kind of make it a more personal place. Yeah, and I think that it also means that you can put a lot more love and care into the individual quests, uh, mm-hmm. making it so that there are a lot more options, being able to put a lot more attention into the dungeons and the way that you can go through them. I will admit that when I was playing it, so the pros, uh, Mm -hmm. pro, it looks pretty good. In fact, it makes Fallout look kind of old and janky at this point. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty good. The gunplay feels pretty good. Uh, That's good. I felt fine. I mean, I'm not going to claim that it's on the level of, say, like Destiny or a game that has really top quality uh, gunplay, but Mm -hmm. it's a fair sight better than Fallout. I was going to ask you, is it better than Fallout? Because Fallout's gunplay, as you say, is not that great. I mean, that's a low bar to clear. But you gotta, <laughs> it's true. a bar that you got to clear, right? That's true. You do. Yeah. I mean, that's what people are kind of hoping for. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have this di- time dilation feature that's mapped directly to a shoulder button. And it works. Uh, I like it a lot better than Bats, honestly, which is kind of mm-hmm. awkward. Uh, right. It just makes sense within that context that you slow down time. Then you can aim, you can shoot enemies in the head. Bada bing, yeah, bada bing. I could never get the hang of vats, really. I just, something about it never felt right to me. The planet is relatively pretty, very neon, has a kind of outer world, or not, not outer worlds, of course it has an outer worlds aesthetic, has kind of a Futurama aesthetic because all of oh, the loading cool. screens have uh, advertisements that are kind of like these 1950s space or actually, no, like really old-timey, 1920s kind of style advertisements. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. It's very Futurama in that regard. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, those are all positive points. I did not come away thinking, oh, I am so much more hyped than before, or, oh, I'm so much lower on this game than before, you know? It's, mm-hmm. it's about the same, which is to say that I am anticipating this game. I think it'll be good, because I think uh, Tim Kaine and Leonard Boyarsky are two of the greatest RPG developers ever, having given uh-huh. us Bloodlines and also Followed, two games that were on our top 25 RPGs of all time. Absolutely, yes. They know how to make a killer RPG. Um, they Their priorities are in the right place, which is to say that they love giving players meaningful choices. Mm-hmm. And I am pretty confident that they're going to do a great job. Um, 
I, I think the downside is I didn't see any quests that truly blew me away. Right. Um, there was a quest uh, called Slaughterhouse Clive. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Where, you know, you have multiple choices where you, how you approach it, right? Okay. Right. So you can go in and you can sneak in mm-hmm. uh, using your stealth. That's one of the pillars. Uh, you can disguise yourself oh. and talk your way in. Uh-huh. And then just, if you go into restricted areas while people are paying attention, they'll stop you and you can talk your way out of it. Though eventually they'll get sick of it and just start shooting. Right? <laughs> so you got to be careful. <laughs> and actually I got lost in the factory and kind of wandered around aimlessly. And then finally they just got sick of it. It's like, what are you doing? You've been here way too many, sh- we're shooting at you. I'm like, oh man. Um, and uh, the third one is, of course, you can just go in and guns blazing. Though... Apparently, you can also sabotage uh, the food supply for the pigs in Clive's slaughterhouse, and uh-huh. that will basically ruin Clive's business. Oh, dear. Sucks for Clive. Yeah. So take that, capitalism. <laughs> take that, meat factory capitalism. Uh, when I was talking to Charles Staples, I was like, okay. So, uh, like, I, I, I talked a lot about, okay, what kind of characters can I make? So if I make a character mm-hmm. real dumb... Uh, will they, like, will that be reflected in their speech? And they're like, oh, yeah, uh, usually if your character doesn't have high intelligence, they get distracted easily. Uh, there's a shiny plastic bag in the air. And I'm like, wait a minute, what are, what are you saying about me? <laughs> I get distracted easily. Hey, wait a minute. Um, I resemble that remark. Yeah, no, yeah, seriously, literally. Um, and they were like, oh, and also uh, in terms of characters that you can roll up that aren't your typical stealthy, long-range, shootery kind of character, uh, you can put a lot of points into command, and that will have a large impact on your companions. In effect, mm-hmm. in effect you can make them do all the work. Yeah, <laughs> like you sit back and like sip a lemonade. I'm like, oh, like I do now with US Gamer. That's great. <laughs> yes, but you work as hard as any of us, so... Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's exactly. Work as hard as everybody else. I'm just going <laughs> to yeah, hide the, my lemonade over here. That's the ticket. So it, it's hard to grok just how much freedom you have in actually developing your character compared uh-huh. to, say, a game like Fallout, where, in fact, I mean, yeah, you can go for the very typical, very boring kind of approach, but there are actually a lot of really interesting kind of builds going on in that game and i'm Mm -hmm. curious to see what people kind of come up with Uh, and then i was asking them about uh the pacifist runs and then the evil runs so you can get through the entirety of the outer worlds without killing anybody and i was just going okay well i mean how does that work and so we were talking about how they basically had to build the encounters around the idea of never having always being able to sneak around it or diffuse it in some way Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, well, how can I be evil? I want to be evil. <laughs> how can I be an asshole? And unfortunately, they were vague. They they did mention uh, the uh, messing around with the food supply with the pigs to screw up the factory. You can actually drive away all of your companions. Oh, no. That's mean. Yeah. Uh, you can kill everybody. Everybody. Ooh. Wow. And That's some Undertale it, shit right there. Yeah. And I was like, well, how do you... How do you make it so that you can finish the game? Like, what happens? And they're like, well, I mean, the game's a lot shorter because all the quest givers are dead. <laughs> game over. Everyone is dead. 
And they said, uh, when you get to the end, you definitely see some ending slides that reflect your, frankly, awful accomplishments. And I'm like, excellent. Your reign of terror across this nice planet. Yeah, but I want some opportunities to really be evil. Like, you know, you can feed your companion to cannibals in Fallout New Vegas. Yes. Now that's evil. <laughs> that's pretty bad. That's that's almost as bad as it gets, I would say. In Mass Effect, you could just pull the plug on an entire race. Oh, that's that's also really bad. Yeah, you can get all genocidal and everything. Let me be evil. I can't do that in games. I feel bad when I'm like that in games. I me too. I can't be bad. I just I'm just saying this for theatrical effect. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be a you want the to be a super villain in theory. You yeah, want the no. Thea- uh, theoretically, I want the dark side to be tempting me at all times, mm. knowing that at any moment I could snap and become a crazy serial killer running around the outer worlds with a bag on my head, uh, shooting people with energy weapons. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, the I guess the option's always good to have if you really want to take that road. Uh, they do have cool weapons like the Mandibular Rearranger, which unfortunately was not one of the items there, which I guess messes around with their face and stuff and does weird things. <laughs> that sounds like some Gravity Falls stuff. I don't know if you ever saw Gravity Falls, but there not. was a... It was surprisingly dark for a Disney cartoon, and there was like this demon who like, you know, some guy was... Some rich guy was trying to suck up to him being like, oh, you know, I can be your companion. And the demon, who's a little like a uh, kind of Dorito-looking guy named uh, Bill Cipher says, oh, that sounds great. How about I rearrange every hole in your face instead? And he basically snaps his fingers and all his, like, his facial parts just, like, move around and it's really horrifying to look at. It's messed up. It's very messed up. Oh, one other piece of news. The Outer World's coming to Nintendo Switch. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that was a surprise. That's awesome, actually. Do because... you think you can handle it? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, okay, so admittedly, I am approaching this from total speculation but Mm -hmm. it's not like we're trying to put the witcher 3 on the thing and the witcher 3 is getting put on the thing so that's a good point and i mean like uh i've been playing uh when i'm not playing fire emblem i still play dragon quest builders on switch and it works fine you don't get the 60 frames per second but big deal well i mean mike did make a salient point in a starting screen a couple weeks ago when he said that uh, developers should be, his theory was basically rather than optimizing for the TV screen and then cramming it onto portable, should be optimized for portable and then put on the TV screen. Right. Almost I mean, as most- if like the TV screen is your equivalent of the PlayStation Pro. Yeah, because right now, like the frame rate hitches and the other and the tearing and the other problems, uh, it's not a deal breaker, but it's an issue. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Also, like, one of my few criticisms of Three Houses is that the dang screen text is too small. Yeah, that's a real problem with a lot of Switch games, too. It's just the damn text is too damn small. Yeah, no, for sure. Because, uh, yeah, I really like that game, but there's so much text. And I was, like, sitting here going, man, why is it so exhausting for me to stare at this game for long periods of time? And then I figured it out. Of course, the dang text. (laughs) And the text is, like, the size of a pinhead. Yeah, I'm. Well, I mean, not that small. I've seen smaller text, uh, but it's not great. So you would think that if they had optimized for the smaller screen of the the Switch, um, that it would be better. And with the Switch Lite on the way, which, by the way, that game, that thing is going to sell a lot of copies of Pokemon. Oh yeah. Uh, you really want to start optimizing for the smaller screen because there will be a whole new group of people who literally will only be able to play portably. Yeah. And uh, it's just video game 
in general, video games in general have always had terrible issues with fonts and they're not getting any better. And it's probably time to start, you know, getting your act together, guys. So anyway, uh, The Outer Worlds is coming out, I guess, sometime this year. And a later date than October 25th, which is when it's coming out for PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. And frankly, like, that's awesome. Uh, Skyrim ran really well on the Switch and ended up actually being a great fit for it. Mm -hmm. And I expect that The Outer Worlds will be much the same uh, for people who like a really good long RPG on the go. There you go, right? I mean, could it be better? So, And I, I hope it lives up to the level of the the console version, because if it is, then you have a great shooter RPG type thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, if I wind up playing it, it's definitely going to be on the Switch, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, between Witcher 3 and The Outer Worlds, that's two kick-ass Western RPGs right there. Yeah, and we're getting, um, they're bringing over Baldur's Gate and everything like that soon. So uh, we're getting there. But as you know, I hate Western RPGs. Now yeah, you yeah. do. You, you just you curse them every day in a torrent of, of profanity. So I'm going to ignore them forever. No, I'm actually not going to ignore them. In fact, I, well, I'm not going to play Witcher 3 on the Switch because actually that's a game that I think should be played on the TV. But literally any way that you can get people to play this thing, I would, I'm okay with it. You know, mm-hmm. if this is the first time anybody's going to play The Witcher 3, it's because it's on the Switch and they want to, it's like, oh, well, I will pick this up on a whim. Good. You're getting one of the, you're getting one <laughs> of the best games of the generation. Yeah, I mean, I will probably pick it up for Switch. Anyway, Outer Worlds, I mean, it looks like a good game. Uh, RPGs are always hard to preview in that kind of setting where you get like, a couple hours to play it because while they did their best to kind of give us a vertical slice of all of the different things that you can do, I mean, you can only really feel what an RPG is like when you have an opportunity to build up your characters, mm-hmm. have context for the events that are going on and the quests that you're taking on. I mean, like, I had these companions with me. I'm like, well, why are you here? What, <laughs> What is the class that I am trying to represent? This person is not me? me. Like, it feels very disorienting to be playing an RPG with a character that you did not build. Of course. Yeah, that's a good point. Every RP- An RPG is a series of decisions that mm-hmm. compound and build on one another. And ideally, in the best RPGs, at the end, uh, all of those decisions come together for a really f- great finale. So just dropping somebody into that with absolutely no context, it, it's difficult. Which is why I was like, I couldn't review uh, when The Witcher 3 expansions uh, were coming out. They're like, oh, no, well, you can just start out a character who's at the right level and then just go from there. Well, I couldn't do it because I didn't do... I didn't do any of the unlocking of the character. I didn't know who this character was. Right. It was like stepping yeah. into somebody's shoes and being like, who am I? Where am <laughs> who I? Who am I? What am I doing here? It's like a Freaky Friday kind of thing where it's yes, like, well, now go exactly. to your job. I have a job? <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? Let's move on, Nadia, and talk some more about the console RPG quest, the latest entry, which is going to be the Game Boy. Don't go away. Okay, it's time for the console RPG quest, and we're going to be approaching this one slightly different than we have in the past. Uh, the the others were more educational, I feel, mm-hmm. and I think now is a good opportunity to 
because we, I mean, we both owned Game Boys, I mean, we perhaps did. we could be a little more casual in our discussion, and we'll try to hit as many points as we can, but I, I would really like to, by the end of this conversation, kind of convey, you know, the, well, not just the legacy of the RPGs on the Game Boy, but the Game Boy as a whole. So it's the 30th anniversary of the Game Boy, Nadia, when did you buy Game Boy? I can't remember what year it was. I know it was a Christmas gift from my parents, and I'm pretty sure my mom bought it for herself because of Tetris. She probably saw it on a news, on a newscast somewhere. And to her credit, she was freaking insanely good at Tetris, like level nine, high five, no problem, sort of thing. So, um, you know, of course, we got our own games for it, and we uh, we uh, had a really good time with it. And I, I would think I probably got mine around 1990, is, is what I want to say. I very distinctly remember the first time that I ever saw a Game Boy. It would have been in our after-school daycare. One of the other kids brought the thing, and I remember thinking, oh my god, those cartridges are tiny. Yeah, little tiny things, aren't they? But the Game Boy itself was so cool, because even though it was yellow and green, mm-hmm. sure was. Uh, I really liked the sound chip. Bless yes. it. It does and, have a very good sound chip. And it looked really good, right? I mean, by the standards of the time, it felt cool to hold this thing in your hand and be able to play real games. Not just Tiger Electronics games, real, honest-to-God games that sort of vaguely resembled something that you might be playing on the NES. Yeah, and it was especially good for me because uh, my family didn't have a Nintendo, but we had a, a Game Boy uh, for a while, and you know, okay, I couldn't play Super Mario or Super Mario Brothers Two, but I could play Super Mario Land, which is a, a good game by itself. I begged and begged for a Game Boy, but I did not get one for a bit. I probably did not get one until 1992, maybe, um, which is you know three three years after it came out, mm-hmm. and I saved up all my money, and my mom let me buy a Game Boy. And a copy of Metroid 2, The Return of Samus. Oh, that's an interesting choice. Yeah, uh, that was my first ever Metroid, I might want to add. Oh, so why did you get a Metroid? Like, what spoke to you about it? I got Metroid 2 because my friend had a Game Boy with Metroid 2. And that was the game that stood out to me the most because it had the best graphics. It was spooky and atmospheric, and I Mm -hmm. really enjoyed it. Oh, that's really interesting. I like that story. And I also played my first RPG on the Game Boy, Nadia. Oh, which one? Uh, that would be Final Fantasy Legend. Ah, uh, that was, uh, I had a copy of that myself. And I did not know that I was playing an RPG. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell did you think you were playing, Mario? I don't even know how I got hold of this thing. It just was a game that came into my possession. Did you have situations where games were being traded and round and rotated so many times that it was just kind of in your collection, but you didn't really know how it got there? Oh, yeah, I have a copy of, uh, I, I don't know where the hell I got my copy of Breath of Fire 2, put it that way. <laughs> Do you still have it? I still have it. Oh, you, I mean, you need to track down whoever had it and be like, give it back. No, I have a suspicion of who had it, who it belonged to, and he was a dickhead, so no. Oh, well, okay, well, screw that person. I agree. Rest in peace. I remember you in Final Fantasy Legend, you would start out and you would see a party that, uh, some characters that you could pick. Uh, uh-huh. You'd choose from a variety of classes to assemble your party, and then you would approach this mysterious tower that nobody really understood. Yeah, that's cool. And you just started climbing to the top of it, and 
you would have random battles and such. It was an RPG. Uh, every floor kind of had its own little story. I remember, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't remember the exact story, but I do remember there was a heroic sacrifice at some point. I was like, oh my God, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, the translation in that game was not great. I found it was kind of an obtuse surprise, game surprise. the translation was, was not so great. Mm. I, I do remember that one of the final swords that you could get was the crystal sword. Oh, that sounds familiar. Yes, and you would... And uh, that was enough to kill most enemies. And I guess what I was supposed to have done was just sit and overlevel myself and then go fight the final boss. Uh-huh. And I understood that on an intuitive level. Uh-huh. I mean, even though I didn't really play RPGs to that point, I understood that you level goes up, you become stronger, Keep just keep going up in level. But I got to the final boss... And I could do a lot of damage to this final boss um, using various attacks and such. But alas, I could never get past the final boss. Well, the final boss was God, so. (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess I couldn't kill God that time, so. Do you remember the first RPG that you played on the Game Boy? Was the Game Boy where you played your first RPG, or was it the NES? No, it was definitely the NES. And uh, I'm trying to remember which RPG I played first. I don't think it was Legend because um, I got Legend quite late. Um, actually, someone in my high school was selling it, and he said, do you want this? I said, sure, I'll grab it. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, I found myself a little confused by it because it's not like you go in there choosing classes in the same manner as Final Fantasy. It's not like, oh, here's a mage, here's a fighter, here's a blah, blah, blah. You choose like you choose your race, like your humans. Uh, I think it was Mutant. And there's also the beast class or the monster class, which also has always confused me because you kind of got stronger by eating uh, meat left behind by enemies. And you never really knew what you're going to get. There was a science to it, but I got it, you know, God help me if I could understand what it was. So I would, you know, eat the meat of some monster and get like weaker because that could happen as well. So uh, it was a bit of a confusing game. It was definitely one of those games that was really intriguing in its, in its, uh, and, and how opaque it was because it was it was fun to, to goof around with and had a great soundtrack as well. You know, the Game Boy was pretty much my primary console for a good chunk of the '90s. Yeah, that that makes sense. It's a good it was a good console to have in the '90s because you know the portability, and then of course uh, we weren't too far away from Pokemon uh, dominating the world. Now you're playing with power, portable, portable power. power. Yeah, no, the the commercials really sold me on it. Yeah, it had some it had some pretty good commercials. I always joked that I had the 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 dust the vacuum tube Game Boy because that was the the most basic version. <laughs> the vacuum tube Game Boy. That was a good way to refer to it. Mine lasted until what finally crapped out was um the control pad. It just wore right down. As far as I can recall, and those things were really built to last. Uh it was still in regular operation until the early 2000s. Oh yeah. Um because I had the uh, so the the battery thing on the back the battery cover mm-hmm. it broke off yeah because oh, no. the little clasp was fairly flimsy yeah it was uh and so the batteries were exposed uh, and then at a certain point uh i handed it down to my sister i actually got her to buy it for me cuz i was kind of mean i was not a mean <laughs> i was not a nice sister i made her buy my game boy for me your busted ass game boy you made her buy it I needed the cash for a Game Boy Color. What do you want? Okay, that makes sense. I can I can appreciate that. But it it kept me company for a long time, and I was playing it pretty regularly through the '90s. I mean, there were a lot of games that I owned. Uh, there not a lot of RPGs, I want to say, but I uh, the first 
Zelda I ever played on the Game Boy was uh, it was Link's Awakening. That's a good. Uh, uh, that's a really good one to start on, frankly. Yes, I, I agree. And is it me or is Link's Awakening weirdly underrated? Uh, I feel like it's it's kind of like become Majora's Mask, where you do have more people are, are definitely willing now to come out and say, oh, yeah, that was actually a really, really good RPG slash game. And um, I still feel like it's one of the games that makes absolute best use of the Game Boy. I've always said that the overworld, if you ever pay attention to the overworld and the dungeons of, of Link's Awakening, you'll notice how Nintendo does not waste space. Every every screen is packed with, with stuff, and I love that. Yeah. I did not understand the language of Zelda when I started playing Link's Awakening. So when I say the language of Zelda, I mean, I didn't understand that you kill all the monsters, you clear mm-hmm. out the room, the door opens. Um, you push the block, the key falls from the ceiling, you get the item, you can keep going, right? So I had to that, call the yeah. Nintendo hotline a lot to be <laughs> like, what, what am I doing? I do not have enough keys. How do I get through? Yeah, I had that same problem with Link's uh, with the uh, Link to the Past because that was my first real Zelda. So I didn't realize like uh, lighting torches, quote unquote, meant actually like those little like things on the ground, the little square things on the ground, and not like the literal torches burning on the walls. I'm like, I'm lighting these torches. Why aren't like why is nothing happening? Around the same time, uh, there were a bunch of other handheld systems coming out. I mean, we already talked about the Game Gear. Uh-huh, an article that you ended up writing was all of the ways that the Game Gear was trying to make fun of the Game Boy, which kind of amused you. <laughs> yeah, if anyone remembers the Sega commercials from that era, they were very, quote-unquote, attitude-heavy. Um, of course, they tried to go after the Game Boy, like, over and over and over again with the whole, oh, uh-huh, look at the Game Boy, it has two colors. If you like two colors, you must be stupid or a dog or, or whatever. And uh, it just it did not work out for them because uh, obviously the Game Boy outsold the Game Gear by a significant margin. But uh, they kept it up for a while, so you got to give them credit for trying. Yeah, the Game Boy had the advantage of being one of the first to market. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it was designed as a portable system. It was. And Years later, it happened again. The DS was designed as a portable system, and the PSP really kind of was not. Yeah. Yeah. I know the PSP, of course, was huge in Japan because uh, Monster Hunter. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, it was not that great a system. It was kind of ahead of its time. I mean, we'll get to it. I mean, the the UMDs were a big problem and everything. Yeah. Yeah. But with the... Uh, I mean, when it came to the Game Boy, uh, it the battery power was good. It was, it yes. It was compact. Um, if you were a guy, you could probably carry it around in your pocket without too much trouble. <laughs> I and can't even imagine that. thing that I didn't really know, it was advertised pretty heavily toward adults. Yeah. Um, I, can, I can barely remember that. But yes, it was. Uh, again, it was my mother who picked it up for us because I think she was interested in Tetris. I guess that it was advertised in like flight magazines and such for businessmen. That would make sense. Yeah, the, I, I mean, you think about what it was like to be a businessman or woman flying uh, from, I don't know, overseas back to the U.S. in 1989. Oh, and you're God. like, what am I going to do? I mean, we're yeah, still yeah. 15 years away from podcasts. And <laughs> I mean, the only movie I can watch is on the screen that's not even in my chair. It's over there that I have to watch no, whatever like, everybody else is watching. It's on the aisle and it's usually cut to for, you know, censored. My headphones are shit. Yeah. I don't even have headphone <laughs> noise canceling headphones. You might and, have a Walkman. Yeah, you might have a Walkman, 
and you can play music, but unless, and maybe you'll bring a big thing of tapes to listen to or like books mm -hmm. on tape or something, but I mean, a Game Boy is going to keep you from going insane is what I'm saying. And it probably kept a few people from going insane. There is actually a picture of uh, Hillary Clinton playing Game Boy on a plane. No way, really? Oh, yeah, look it up. It's a, it's an old picture. Uh, it is from the height of Tetris's popularity, and it's just her playing. Uh, it's the only game she played, uh, her playing uh, Tetris. Oh, wow. Okay. The Game Boy was, as we already said, insanely well-selling. It is the third best-selling console of all time, Nadia. Do you know what the top two are? I think the top two, um, one has to be PlayStation 2. Mm-hmm. And I think 2 is probably the DS. Correct. So the ding, PlayStation ding, ding. 2 sold 155 million units, which is Ooh. just crazy town. <laughs> that and is nuts. I expect that a lot of that is on the back of the, the success of GTA. Uh, the consoles were still extremely successful in Japan at the time. This was before the kind of the crash of the PS3. So there's just a combination of it. And then the, you know, the console market was continuing to grow in the U.S., and then the with the Nintendo DS, that was 154 million. It almost it came close, honestly, yeah. to surpassing the the PlayStation 2. And that one, I mean, they just had a, a billion SKUs. And the yeah, DS helped. was ridiculously absurdly popular in Japan. It felt like the DS Lite was everywhere. Yeah, although I'm sure this is something we'll cover when we get to the DS uh, console quest. But I wonder how many, of course, this holds a ton of systems. I wonder how many games were pirated because everyone I knew had a DS, but nobody I knew paid for games. Um, I, that was a I, big problem, yeah. That really was a big problem. And I have to say, you know, I don't want to be like superior or anything like that. But by that point, I was writing about games, so I wanted to not pirate games. So I didn't, but everyone was just like, oh, why don't you just get a flashcard and, and load it up with 100 games? And I was like, well, because uh, my job kind of depends on games. Uh, everybody had a flashcard, certainly where I worked. And that was in Japan? Uh, yeah, when I was in Japan, uh, everybody, basically everybody had like the R4 flashcard that yeah, they would exactly. just load up with games and where they would be toting uh, DS with them. Yeah, pretty much. But yeah, the Game Boy really got the portable gaming as a thing started and i mean putting uh tetris on it was kind of a masterstroke obviously but i mean rpgs were a really good fit for it as well which explains why there were honestly quite a few really good rpgs on it yeah um that's something i was bringing up earlier is how uh well one thing th another advantage the game boy had over the uh game gear is for the most part it was well-suited for games that were kind of slow-moving, of which RPGs, let's face it, they're menu-based. Uh, so that means you're not going to get so much in the way of screen blur, which is a big problem on Game Gear, and frankly, even some like more action-oriented Game Boy games. I mean, but you, RPGs. Had, you had plenty of screen blur on the, the Game Boy. So I got a Game Boy in the mail, <laughs> you may recall. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I told this story. So for some reason... Pac, uh, Red Bull and Pac-Man did a promotion. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you got like a weird... Ad you got a Game Boy in the mail. I remember now. It just showed up. Yeah. With a Red Bull can. <laughs> I was like... Yeah, like you okay. do. And apparently they just bought a bunch of eBay Game Boys on eBay, refurbished them, put them together in this package, and sent them out to people. Wow. With a copy of uh, Pac-Man on Game Boy. Which, by the way, Pac-Man on Game Boy is not a good game. 
Well, at least they gave you a Game Boy out of it. Oh, yeah. No, I got a Game Boy. But the one game I still had was Battletoads. Oh, God. <laughs> and I started playing that game, and it is blurry as hell. Oh, no. I, I bet. Ugh, yeah, it really wasn't great for action, which is why it was really so good for RPGs, because, well, there's not a whole lot of movement going on in RPGs, usually. Yeah, I mean, it's menu-based, so you can sit there and you can think about it. And, uh, yeah, no. Um, and this is the kind of game that if you are suddenly distracted, you can pretty easily put aside and run off. Though, of course, you can't suspend a game on the Game Boy, which is annoying. Yeah, um, some games were pretty good about that. Some games knew what they were, Pokemon being a perfect example. You could save wherever and whenever, but... Uh, then you have the games where some genius who was programming decided, oh, no, you can only save it like ends or whatever. So if you're suddenly at grandma's house and dad's telling you to turn off the Game Boy, well, it sucks to be you. I mean, part of the problem, though, also was that obviously the Game Boy was not backlit or frontlit unless you had yes. Game Boy Light. Yes. Uh, which was one of the SKUs that I believe was Japan only. Um, mm -hmm. Parrish, who's a Game Boy connoisseur and has Game Boy World, which you should go check out, by the way. That's it's a good a, series we watch. It's a, great yeah. it's a lovely little YouTube series by our former boss, Jeremy Parrish. Um, yeah, he, he knows all about the Game Boys. So mm -hmm. he, he has like the Game Boy Light and such. Uh, like, it's like every SKU. And there was also the Game Boy Pocket, but which had a much better screen. And Yeah, I never, I've never like actually seen the Pocket or played it, you know? Yeah, the the Game Boy Pocket was the era when they were starting to try and cram Super Nintendo games onto this thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, that was when Donkey Kong Land was put on it. That was uh, just not a very good looking game. I think my husband showed me that and it was like, ooh, this was not meant to be. Uh, yeah, no, though at the time it was technologically impressive. It was. It was definitely technologically impressive, but uh, not a game I'd like boot up again once if I ever just had a, a black and white Game Boy in my hands. There was also the Super Game Boy. Oh, that's right, yes. I yep. didn't have one of those, but my husband did. I didn't understand the point of it at the time. <laughs> it's actually, uh, speaking of my husband, he had one because his his parents wouldn't let him have an original Game Boy because they said, it'll ruin your eyes. I mean, in hindsight, it makes total sense. Yeah. Basically, you're getting a Game Boy that you can play on your TV, and they did an amazing job of having the little borders and everything. It lo They looked great. Mm -hmm. And... Great, yeah. But at the time, I was like, why would you buy one of those? I mean, I have a Game Boy right here. I can play it portably. Great. <laughs> and since you have a Game Boy, that means everyone has a Game Boy. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> What's their problem? <laughs> but really, sense. Uh, pretty much everybody had a Game Boy. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, the point that I was making was that unless you had a Game Boy Lite or a Super Game Boy, I mean, you had to kind of be sitting in really direct sunlight or else mm -hmm. you could not see. And Game Boy games being so text-heavy could make it kind of hard. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if you remember, but once the batteries started running out, like, the screen would get even worse and harder to see, either way too light or way too dark, depending on the mood that day. Yes, exactly. So the, the Game Boy did have its drawbacks in that regard. Uh, yet still, because it was so uh, well-selling, I suppose, over in Japan, it was the best-selling console and all of that, uh, would you be surprised that a lot of RPGs were on it? No, not at all. Not at all. So uh, I was mentioning Super Robot Wars. Did you know Super Robot Wars got its start on the Game Boy? Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Uh, the original Super Robot Wars was there. There was also an SD Gundam um, at the time. And uh, it was not the only Game Boy game, but it was 
there was a remake of Super Robot Wars 2, I believe, that came on to the Game Boy. Mm-hmm. And it was somewhat different from the later games. Uh, for example, in modern Super Robot Wars games, every single robot has spirit commands that give it special abilities. Mm-hmm. In the original Super Robot Wars, it was only the leader of your party that had them. Ah. Hmm. And it had the core robots. So it had the Mazinger, and it had the, the Getter Robo, and it had the, the Gundam. And they were fighting enemies from those particular shows. And it obviously looks very primitive. Um, yes. But for the time, it would have been really cool because you would have had very nice digital uh, representations of everybody's favorite robots. Yeah, so it's a humble start, but it's a start. Yep, and then, of course, obviously, it exploded and subsequently moved on to console. I mean, it was kind of like Kirby's Dreamland. Like, a game could get its start on the, the Game Boy, but then it felt like it was graduating when it got onto consoles. Yeah, that's true. I forgot that Kirby got its start on Game Boy as well. Also, Gargoyle's Quest. Oh, right. That's, um, that's like kind of a spinoff of, of Ghouls and Ghosts, right? Uh, yeah, it is, where you're playing as a gargoyle, but it's kind of like a... Okay, forgive me. I have not played Gargoyle's Quest, but my understanding is that it's a little more open-ended, almost like a, kind of almost like a Metroidvania sort of situation. Yeah, because I played the one on SNES, which is a continuation, of course, of the one on Game Boy. And it's and, the one uh, that everybody remembers. It's the, the SNES yeah. one. Yeah, which was a good game. Which, That's by the way, uh, the Gargoyle ended up being a character in one of, I, I think, Marvel versus Capcom. It was, um, I remember the game it was. It was some, like, uh, it was one of those versus games. It wasn't Marvel versus Capcom, but it was uh, it was one that had like zero from the Mega Man Zero series. It was a weird. Oh, I think it was SNK versus uh, one of the SNK versus Capcom games. It was a weird ass game. So you played Final Fantasy Legends, right? Yes. Oh, give me your thoughts. Uh, Final Fantasy Legends was like. Um, hold on, let me collect my thoughts on this one because I had something I wanted to mention about it, but I totally forgot. <laughs> Final Fantasy Legend, like, I've already mentioned how I was kind of confused by the, um, by the classes and stuff. I was also confused by, there was, I remember getting stuck in one spot in particular, maybe you remember this, but it was like a room full of orbs, and one of the orbs was real, and the rest were all false, and you had to search every single one, unless you know exactly where you were going, and there was a hint somewhere, but of course I missed it, and if you, like, kind of turned up the wrong orb, then you would have to fight, and (laughs) that was a big pain in the ass. But um, I do remember that it had just a really interesting sort of uh, premise because I love the idea that here's this tower that's going into heaven and it's just sitting in the middle of a town. It's like, what does this tower do? I don't know. Where does it go? I don't know. It's just it's just a thing. It's, it's here, which was so different from RPGs. Most RPGs at the time would be like this tower like has this big history and everyone knows about it and everyone knows where it goes and it's legends and all this and that and it's like yeah we have this tower we call it bob it's just here <laughs> bob the tower bob the tower <laughs> i uh i enjoyed it but i i don't think i ever felt a need to graduate to legends 2 or legends 3 which was supposed to be really good uh the interesting thing about the final fantasy legends and adventure games of course were they were trojan horses all oh, right, they were they were like saga games, weren't they? Yeah, well, Legends was a saga game, and Adventure was the mana game, Seiken yes. Densetsu. And yes. obviously, you're the you're the mana connoisseur here. I am the mana connoisseur. I am I am indeed the mana connoisseur. But I did not play Adventure on the Game Boy for um, until quite recently. I think is uh, when I when I finally played it. But I did play and enjoy 
the remake on iOS and um, PSP. I, I don't think Jeremy liked it very much, but I, I liked it quite a bit. Um, unfortunately, the Mana Collection doesn't have the remake, but it does have the original Game Boy version, which is still still a great game. And I love going back and seeing like these really familiar Mana characters as these little black and white sprites and seeing how well they kind of just how like there's how well their simple sort of designs have carried over over the years like you look at it's not like you know super mario land where you look at uh, a goomba and it looks completely like dinky and different from a you know a regular goomba on the nes it really just does look like oh here's a rabbit from final fantasy adventure here's a rabbit from secret of mana and they they look quite a bit the same it was it was a is that surprisingly long game um but it was like a good meaty one too it's a it's a, it's a pretty good start to the series well, you gotta play it on the Nintendo Switch in the Mana Collection. Yeah, absolutely. That's where it is. It's waiting for you. I mean, just play the Game Boy one. That's the only one that you need to play. I, I like. I, I was kind of hoping the remake would be on there, but uh, the Game Boy one still holds up. It's a good game. But uh, I think that before the remake I'm talking about came out, there was sort of Mana on the Game Boy Advance, and I'm sure we'll get to the Game Boy Advance, of course. But uh, no, yeah, we're skipping good. that one. We're, we're, sorry, everyone. You heard it here first. We're not doing Game Boy Advance. Nobody cares about the Game Boy Advance. No, I care about it. It was a good system. It was a good system. I'm looking forward to that discussion. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the fact that the Game Boy kind of went through three or kind of very specific generations. Mm-hmm. So when it started out in 1989, it was distinctly a 8-bit console and mm-hmm. was designed as such. So you had games like Super Mario Land and things like that. And then it was still around when the Super Nintendo came out. And games started to resemble their Super Nintendo counterparts. Uh, For example, Mario Land Six Golden Coins. Yes, that was actually a really good-looking game. I'm really impressed by the work they put into that. And and Donkey Kong Land, of course. Right, of course. And then finally, the third phase was around the time of the Nintendo 64. And the Game Boy was still trucking along. That thing continued on. It was the sheer longevity of the Game Boy that really gave it life, right? It, I mean, and that really explains the sales and also monoculture, blah, blah, blah. There were billion games for it. Um, well, you compare it to the Game Boy Advance, a system that really only lasted from about 2001 mm-hmm. to uh, well, not 2005, and then it was done. Another four years. Well, Nintendo kind of killed it preemptively by accident, I think. Oh, it was the third pillar. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Why are they doing the third pillar? Uh, But then the DS was so successful that it just flat out killed the GBA, which was them just hedging. They were like, well, we can always go back to the Game Boy name. (laughs) Whoops. Uh, And then the DS lasted from like 2004-ish to about 2011, 2012, uh, which was a good healthy run, but nowhere near the same as the Game Boy. No, the Game Boy really took the it took the trophy. Other than maybe the PlayStation Two for or longevity. the 3DS, honestly, the 3DS started in 2011, mm-hmm. and it's still going to some extent. I mean, it's yeah. not healthy, but no. as recently as last year, major games were coming out for it. Oh, you're yeah, you're absolutely right. Even this year, I mean, you still had a couple of, of pretty good ones. Yeah, in 2017, they were putting out. Uh, I mean, major Pokemon games, and that was, mm-hmm. you know, that was six years after its original launch. So um, they're pretty much done with the 3DS, but it's it's still hanging in there. Yeah, uh, it's not like, I mean, I've, I did see a few DS, uh, 3DSs at Otakon, so it's not totally dead. 
But, I mean, Gunpei Yokoi, uh, rest his soul, uh, really built that thing to last and kind of made it timeless, right? And even though it was built with, like, really cheap components, ultimately, it was a surprisingly flexible little machine. The developers did a really good job with it. Yeah, and uh, physically, it was a pretty solid machine. And, of course, we all know the legend of the bombed-out Game Boy. It's still running in the Nintendo World Store in New York City. I've, I've seen it several times. It's still running. Uh, I've dropped mine a few times, and it's still going. I do remember that by the, you know, mid-90s or so, like, I was playing my Game Boy less and less. It Mm -hmm. felt like it was losing momentum a bit after the the Super Game Boy came out. Um, I mean, there was stuff like Donkey Kong 94 and such. Uh, Which was a good game, yeah. But (laughs) did you know that there was a Diablo game that almost came out for the Game Boy? (laughs) (laughs) I remember hearing about that somewhere, but yes, it was Diablo Jr. or something planned uh, to that regard. They were going to do it like Pokemon, where they had three cartridges. Yeah, it's interesting. So they were going to try and milk it as much as possible, but they killed the project before it even got to that point. Ah, that would have been, well, probably would have been a disaster. It would have been fun to see. Though there was a prototype. Oh, really? Is it out there at all? You can go watch the YouTube video of somebody playing it. Oh, I might do that. But, um... Yeah, so I wasn't really playing the Game Boy. And then all of a sudden, I started hearing about this game called Pokemon. And, of course, I was like, pocket monsters? Why would anybody want to play a monster in the pocket? And that was a very crappy <laughs> platformer with with monsters who were in your pocket because it was yeah. the, the pocket gaming craze at the time. And, no, no, pocket monsters, Pokemon, which was, look, got to catch them all. I mean, we were talking about it earlier with the National Pokedex. This is where it all began. By the way, yep. just hit the reset button. At this point, just hit it. Just do it. Do it. Start a new mainline RPG. Just close it down. I don't want them to reset it. I, I like I like Arcanine. I like Litten. I like all, I have all my friends. Well, here's the thing. But then you can roll in other generations of Pokemon at will. Okay, that's fair. I mean, they kind of did that to a certain degree with Black and White, didn't they? No, not really, because you could always get the National Pokedex in Black and White. I mean, we've talked about Pokemon God knows how many times on this show. I mean, I think you know the history. Um, And obviously it became just ridiculous here. It started in 1996 in Japan, uh, was created by a studio called Game Freak that uh, were kind of fanzine creators. (laughs) They had a good idea for a game that would use the link cable, which had been kind of forgotten. I mean, it was mm-hmm. a really nifty idea for the tet- uh, for Tetris, but wasn't being used so much. But the idea was that you would trade monsters over from system to system, and that was the kind of the secret sauce, the communication aspect that made Pokemon so special. Because not only could you trade, you could also battle them. Right. And that one idea, combined with the fact that it was an unholy marketing machine, was behind it. Yes. Uh, came in and just caught fire in a ridiculous way and completely revived the fortunes of the Game Boy. Not too long after that, along came the Game Boy Color. Yes, and I actually, I, but when I had a Game Boy, I wasn't huge into RPGs for the most part. But by the time I got a Color, of course, I was I was really big into RPGs and. Uh, there were some good ones on Game Boy Color. Uh, I do have to give the Game Boy Color a shout out because it helped revive uh, Dragon Quest in the West because for years and years and years, like Dragon Quest was just not here at all. Uh, but then they brought over Dragon Quest Monsters to cash in on the Pokemon craze. And when they did that, they uh, brought over the Dragon Quest 1 and 2 collection, which was for both Game Boy and Game Boy Color. 
But then they brought over Dragon Quest III for the Game Boy Color, which was actually an excellent port. And I just remember getting that and getting my Game Boy Color and just falling in love with uh, with Dragon Quest III all over again. So that was nice. Yeah, having the... I, I think for maybe a lot of Americans, that might have been the first time they ever kind of grokked Dragon Quest Three because I remember when it came out, it was kind of a big deal. Yeah, um, I remember there was like big Nintendo Power features and everything like that, and uh, they... When they brought over Dragon Quest One and Two, they had like this really hideous box art that because they were still kind of afraid to use anime. But by the time they brought over Dragon Quest Three, they just leaned right over into into Toriyama finally, and uh, that was probably the first instance of that happening in the West. And I, I just remember that when the Game Boy Color came out, um, I didn't get one immediately. I was still playing Pokemon on my uh, vacuum tube Game Boy, and by <laughs> that break. time. The, the battery cover was gone, as I already mentioned, and I didn't really understand how much better the screen was until I actually got one. I was like, wow, oh, yeah. it's so clear. Yeah, it's uh, it's clear, it's beautiful, it's color. I don't think it was backlit, but it used two batteries oh, no. instead of instead of four. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> yeah, and it lasted a long time. Yeah, and the, the, improved, uh, the improvements to the technology were really good. They were. Yeah, I think the flagship, the, the games that we all remember on Game Boy Color the most, Link's Awakening DX. Uh-huh, which is good. Uh, also, uh, Wario Land 2. Oh, that's right. Yeah, but I never played that, actually. The original Wario Land was excellent. Wario Land mm-hmm. 2 was, but Wario Land 2 was when Wario became the Wario that we know, because I believe mm-hmm. that was when it introduced the conceit of Wario being invincible. <laughs> that's right, yes. And then Wario. finally... Uh, Pokemon Gold and Silver and Crystal, which right, were and that was a big one. actually in color. And that was when Pokemon, thinking that they were just, that was over, that was, they just threw everything in. And you should go listen to our Top 25 RPG uh, countdown episode of Pokemon Gold and Silver, where, I mean, they really thought that was over, like that, that was the end mm-hmm. of the series, and just threw the kitchen sink into it. And it was great. It was awesome. Yeah, and uh, guess what? It wasn't over. <laughs> You're stuck with Pokemon Forever, Game Freak. I'm sorry. I was still playing my Game Boy Color in 2000. I mean, I still had it. And I I remember I was really into Pokemon at the time in college. And I had been playing so much GBA. And then I just decided to go back to Crystal because <laughs> I liked the Johto region. And mm-hmm. I played through the entirety of that game. And... Uh, raised a whole new crew of Pokemon explicitly in that game, even though I couldn't transfer them over. I had a lot more time in my hands back then. Uh, my most uh, vivid Game Boy Color memory, I mentioned Dragon Quest Three, and one way I got in a lot of time with it was I was working, I was working custodial at a mall uh, that's in Toronto here, and this mall is ancient and it has like just the most incredible like passageways and, and hidden areas and like so I just kind of hide and play Dragon Quest 3 in these tunnels. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, I I mean, certainly the Game Boy and the DS and the GBA kept me very busy uh, during all the time, all the downtime that I had doing menial jobs in college. But I was playing uh, Pokemon Crystal on my Game Boy Color in security, um, which I picked up Pokemon Crystal on a road trip to Milwaukee. How far is Milwaukee from Minnesota? I mean, it's a few hours. It's like four hours away um, okay. from where I was living. So not an insignificant distance. 
Uh, and then when you drive into Milwaukee, you're almost knocked over by all the hops. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So that, those are my two key memories. Uh, sausage, kind of a mess stadium, and getting knocked over by hops. <laughs> Amazing. Anyway, wrapping up, uh, a few other RPGs that are kind of note. Uh, sort of Hope, which I was watching a video of this one, and Parrish in his best 30, uh, best 30 games for the Game Boy uh, listed Sort of Hope as one of the best. And oh, really? yeah, I mean, it's kind of a cross between Shadowgate and Dragon Quest. It came out in like 1980. And mm-hmm. it's like a classical adventure game for the PC, but it's on Game Boy. It's kind of cool. Yeah, I was um, reading uh, an opinion of this because I haven't played it myself. And the person writing the opinion was saying how um, basically, yeah, it takes a more complicated sort of format of a Shadowgate slash Dungeon Crawler RPG. And kind of has the fights be more menu-based Dragon Quest-y. And his argument was, well, the whole point of Dragon Quest was to simplify RPGs. Why would you kind of switch between the formats like that? But I guess it's a matter of taste. Uh, there's another game. I mean, the premise makes me think of uh, basically Earthbound, but it's called Great Greed. <laughs> yes. Uh, I can't remember. I feel like I read something about you playing that at some point. Sure didn't. <laughs> <laughs> sure didn't. Well, if you can confidently say that, I understand why. Because it's a a very unusual sounding RPG with like very environmental theme, which was common back then. But uh, just with characters named like Cabbage Head, and and just you fight like sometimes you fight normal looking enemies like you know giant rats or whatever, and sometimes you fight a spiral ham. Because why wouldn't you? There was an Ultimate Ruins of Virtue, Ultima Ruins of Virtue two. Really? Yes, uh, but it was like an action RPG. Like oh, okay. top down kind of more like zelda than right a traditional ultima game and uh lufia the legend returns which was actually oh. kind of the third game in the series it came after lufia one and two and uh it's kind of notable for having a multitude of characters like a party system and also it lets you fight all of the sinistrals which uh lufia fans uh it's kind of a cult favorite yeah, uh, I was never huge into Lufia, but I never really had a chance to get really deep into it. But um, that would have come out quite late then, because Lufia was an SNES uh, series. I mean, so I can understand why Parrish really loves the Game Boy, because, I mean, first of all, it left a giant footprint on mm. the, the the medium, right? Yes. And, I, I mean, it was around for from 1989 into the early 2000s in one form or another, the Game yes. Boy Color could was basically just a Game Boy. It meant a lot to RPGs, obviously. I mean, one of the most important RPGs ever made and mm-hmm. released, Pokemon, got its start on the Game Boy. One way or another, Pokemon's identity as a series is inextricably linked to that portable experience. They built Pokemon around the strengths of the Game Boy. And for that reason, I mean, you just have to look at the Game Boy and say that it is perhaps one of the most significant uh, systems ever made for RPGs in general. Yes, it's, uh, I mean, heck, I'd say it's one of the most influential game systems of all time, if not the most influential game system of all time. For sure. And then it had things like the printer. Why did it have a printer? I don't know. Ask Parrish. He loved that thing. And the camera? The camera, yep. And yeah. um, he loved that thing as well. Yeah, yeah. The Nicky, the knickknacky things. And then I would play <laughs> uh, Link's Awakening DX and I would take the pictures 
Those were cute. Those were adorable, though. Yeah, it was super cute. Um, I love those. A lot of the best games on the Game Boy, the original Game Boy, were uh, kind of ports from the NES, but pl- mm-hmm. like Dragon Quest, for example, but or Zelda or Metroid. But, mm-hmm. I mean, not ports, but, like, kind of their own games on the Game Boy that right. subsequently kind of grew into something else. Um, I can't think of many games that were direct ports from the NES to the Game Boy. Often the Game Boy version was something totally different. Actually, um, there was one I was just studying about today. Studying is an interesting word for looking at video games. Uh, did you ever play Crystallis for the for the NES? Did we not mention Crystallis? Oh, my we did gosh. not mention Crystallis. I mean, Crystallis. that was a big one for the Game Boy Color. It was, and some people are... Somebody, oh, like, oh. somebody's just going, oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God, Naughty, I can finally pee. But, um, yes, Crystallis I loved on the NES, and I looked up the Game Boy Advance, uh, sorry, uh, Game Boy Color port, and uh, it's apparently not that great because, number one, the biggest problem is the screen size is severely reduced, and this is not an easy game to begin with. Uh, and now you have enemies, you know, flinging projectiles at you off screen, and nobody needs that. Uh, and the soundtrack was completely redone, and it's not good. Yeah. But uh, otherwise, mean, it's pretty direct. Yeah, that that's just going to be the case with uh, the Game Boy. There were many times where the realities of the smaller screen rea- resulted in things like in Mega Man, uh, the much bigger sprite. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that was sometimes the trade-off you got with Game Boy, was the games could look as good as they did on the NES, but... Only if you had, if you were willing to sacrifice like these big detailed sprites for for real estate, which was, you know, not usually a good trade because uh, usually smaller sprites made for a more interesting, a more uh, a cleaner gameplay experience. Anyway, I can thank the Game Boy for Pokemon and Super Robot Wars, which are two of my favorite RPGs. It got me back into Dragon Quest after a very long pause, and uh, that was actually my first time seeing Dragon Quest enemies animated, because yes, the Game Boy Color version of Dragon Quest Three had animated enemies, and it looked really good. Okay, that was our discussion of the RPG legacy of the Game Boy. Do you have anything you want to add? Make sure to leave a comment in our show notes, send me a DM on Twitter, write me at cat.bailey at usgamer.net, or tweet me at the underscore catbot. I'm sure that you have plenty of memories of the Game Boy, and I would love to hear them, and it's an iconic system. Okay, so let's keep going to the mailbag. Okay, Nadia, last week we did our spoiler-filled review roundtable of Fire Emblem Three Houses. And we have some comments. This one is from FTL Mantis. And they have a lot of uh, observations, including they think the beast enemies are the best designed enemies in any tactics RPG. What do you think, Nadia? Uh, Talking about the uh, beast enemies from... The giant monsters. Yeah, I actually fought one for the first time, um, Mm -hmm. I think last night, and... Yeah, they're, they're something else, aren't they? I'm still not 100% sure how... They, they, they're kind of talking to me about, like, um, breaking down barriers and stuff, so I'm still trying to get the hang of that. But, yeah, they're pretty they're pretty intimidating. They get to be in just a nuisance later on. I bet. Yeah, because there's so many of them, so it's just like, okay, well, just got to deal with these one at a time until <laughs> you get to the end of the map. But 
Uh, the, as a progression system, the skills are the best of any Fire Emblem so far. It feels organic and fun to get skills to the point where you can advance to a new class. They also toned down the ridiculous one-shot kills that basically acted as a second crit roll, which were everywhere on the higher levels of Fates. Big improvement. Uh, but on the other hand, the game is way, way too easy because it's pretty easy to be overleveled. Are you overleveled, Nadia? Uh, I am definitely overleveled, especially my hero. He is he is just a one-man wrecking ball. This game lets you be the strongest relative to your opposition of any Fire Emblem game. Dorothea, dealing 80 damage from across the map on a boss directly for the time skip is genuinely amazing the first time it happens. <laughs> no, it's true. Like, I was... She has a spell called Meteor. Mm-hmm. You don't mess with Dorothea. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. She can summon Meteors. Sammy J9 says it really nails what I'd call the persona effect, constantly switching up your activities and giving you a ton of rotating variety of things to do so it always stays mm-hmm. fresh. And in addition, basically everything you do in every piece of the game feeds into others. The bat- loop of battle, lectures, character growth, building, planning, side quests, spending renown to improve stack growth, re- raising relations and motivation, battles, etc. and so on is ridiculously infect- addictive. The game earns my reward of 2019 of game I said I'll play for an hour and then end up doing just one more thing and suddenly it's 2 a.m. game. Which yeah, is exactly what happened to our news writer, Eric Van Allen. Yeah, and myself as well. It's a it's a, definitely a game that you can get lost in quite easily. Yeah, no, for sure. So, man, it's always funny like when you play a game for so long during a review and then finally it comes out and everybody else gets to play it too. Yeah, and they're all got their heads down to the screen. <laughs> You all understand that, right, folks? Yep, now we understand. We are part of the cult. Thanks to everybody who wrote in, and of course, we will read letters on every episode of Acts of the Blood Gods. So, yes, send us your notes. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, in the meantime, Acts of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. If you enjoy the podcast, make sure to rate us and review us. Follow us on all of the social media platforms. Subscribe to our podcast. We will be back next week, as always, uh, probably to continue our console RPG quest, but who even knows anymore? I wouldn't mind. <laughs> I finally finished up my Madden review, Nadia, um, which is to say that I didn't review it. <laughs> Football. Football! We're only Football. a month away. Training camp's happening. Wow. Yeah, the real RPG. A real RPG. Football. Stat, it's like stat, real-time stat. tactics RPG happening right in front of you. I don't know why all RPG fans don't want to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not my thing. Fair enough. Anyway, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy adventuring. <laughs>